Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Keezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. My Gazette colleague Adam Schinder will be on later for his weekly look at high school football. Well, on the podcast today, we're saluting the Tims in the first two segments of this podcast. Segment two will have Tim Healy of Newsday as we wrap up the New York Mets season. We're going to talk about the NBA in segment one as the new season tipped off Tuesday. To help me preview the season is the NBA beat writer for the Associated Press, Fort Ann native and devout. Philadelphia Phillies fan, Tim Reynolds. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. And as we tape here on Tuesday, the Phillies get set to take on the San Diego Padres in the National League Championship Series. How great is this right now? I don't even know what to make of it. I am, I am, um, I had lost hope. (laughs) I've lost hope in May. (laughs) I I know the feeling. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, if you've been a Phillies fan, and it's the only team, it, it's kind of it's the only team I've stayed with my whole life. Like I've had fandoms come and go, and really, the only team that I'm still in love with, period, is the Phillies. Yeah, and it it builds. I under now I understand what it was like to be a Red Sox fan for 84 years. <laughs> I I understand what it was like to be a Cubs fan for 3,000 centuries. I get it. It builds character. It really does. It's hard to be a Phillies fan, but this this team, it's so much fun. The job that Rob has done, um, it's it's a reminder that to us the Phillies are. It's a reminder that the Phillies are the greatest franchise in the history of the world. But it's a reminder broadly to other people that we have the best jobs, don't we? Because yeah. you never you never know. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, I was thinking, I was thinking the other day. I saw your you, you, you tweeted out your that you're now in the corner at, at, at Union. Yes. You have a new press box seat at Union. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself because we have we have the Frozen Four in Tampa this year. Mm-hmm. Union winning the national championship is still to me one of the most amazing stories. Union College won a national championship without scholarship. You never know. You just okay. never know. Yep. So cool. Anyway, so. Sports are the best. The Phillies are the best. And I hope we do a podcast with the parade. That would be awesome. <laughs> Definitely. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, this Phillies team got swept by the Cubs in six games this year. I mean, they got blown out by the Nationals in a, in a doubleheader, in a game one of a doubleheader. And you just think, oh, this team just drives you nuts. And then you see what they have done in the postseason. And I, you know, I talked with Tim Healy about this in the segment, too. And I'll, I'll bring it up with you. They're playing anti-analytical baseball. I mean, they're stealing bases. They're moving runners over. They're bunting. It's not not relying on home runs. Although they're getting yeah, some, but uh, they're, not, they're they're playing baseball the way it should be played. Well, they're playing baseball in a way that works for them. And you know, I I mean, I I have to kind of give Alex Rodriguez. Some some respect. Oh, I mean, you have to give him some. I, I have to give him a lot of respect because obviously he he was one of the broadcasters on the wild card series, and he kept making the same point over and over and over. You got to make contact. If you make contact, 
kind of amazing what can happen. Yeah. Like if you're not making contact, if you're swing, if you're trying to hit five run homers, you're not doing yourself any good. Put the ball in play and see what happens. I mean, that six run inning against St. Louis, they are still living off the momentum of that. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. And now they are going to be, you know, almost two weeks and, you know, two series removed from it in the NLCS. It's just amazing what happens when you do things the right way. When you hit, when you put the bat head on the ball and you catch the ball and you throw strikes and the bullpen comes in and doesn't try to do too much and does its job, it's, it's an impossibly hard game. But you can make it very easy just by making it a little bit easier on yourself and seeing if the baseball gods want to reward it. And they're having fun. I mean, Rob Thompson has brought a sense of calmness into that clubhouse that I don't think if the, if the Phillies won with Joe Girardi, I don't think you would see the wild celebrations that they've had after clinching uh, the first two series that we have seen with, from these from these guys. You know, I look at Rob, and I think Rob's development just in the last two weeks speaks to where the Phillies have been all season. When they clinched the berth, Remember, Rob Thompson gave the speech in the clubhouse mm-hmm. during the champagne celebration and then tried to take a swig of champagne with the cork still in the bottle? <laughs> he forgot to decork the champagne. <laughs> He's gotten so much better at it now with every other step. It's like the Phillies. It just took time. He had, to, he had to learn. They had to learn to just play the game the right way. He had to learn to take the cork out of the champagne before trying to drink, take a drink from it. You, I like when you see progress from a team, don't you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> He's... It, he's such a good story, and it's such a. It, he's a guy. There's a lot of them. Like I've been very lucky to be around the Marlins for two decades now. Mike and Dolan's, and, Mike and, Dolan's. and be, those those well those quintessential baseball guys who you never think are going to be managers, and when they get their chance, they don't. They, they just okay. They just become the same. And Rob Thompson didn't change. He's just been the same guy. And yeah. and for whatever reason, in Philly, I think in Philly especially, you need, well, probably anywhere, but in Philly we've seen it work where I go back to that, I mean, we could probably recite it. When the Phillies clinched the NL East in 93, the team goes nuts on the field in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Don Paul flips it over to Cruck for the final out. The team goes crazy, as teams do when they clinch, when they clinch the division. And then it took about two minutes for Fergosi to just kind of saunter out of the saunter out of the dugout and just slow walk into the middle of the infield and just go shake some hands and whatever. He was the right guy, as as Harry said that night, that he was the perfect manager for yeah. that team. He embraced that team. Was that team was insane? That team was nuts. Yeah, team fun. fun and he, last didn't, yeah. he didn't try to break them of it. I think Joe had them all holding the bat a little too tight. Mm-hmm. And and Rob Thompson comes in. He's like, "Hey, just be you." And it took some time. And then, thankfully, they figured it out in the nick of time and and got there. And now, whatever. Look, I know we're going to get greedy and say we want, you know, we want to win the whole thing. And of course, we do. But man, whatever happens, happens. All I know is that the Phillies are on my TV, and the Braves are not, and the Mets are not. Yeah, that's a successful season, yeah, right so there. The top two teams in the NL East are watching. The Phillies, <laughs> and it's got to be a slow burn for them. But uh, I mean, I go back to Dallas Green. You know, when I was in high school, my my, my senior year, nineteen eighty, he was the right guy. He was a, uh, I guess, dictator is too strong a word, but he was a 
uh, hands-on. He wasn't going to take crap from the players who, you know, basically, you know, walked all over Danny, the previous manager, Danny Ozark, and they wanted, they wanted title. They, they hated his guts, but they, they but the, they, they wanted title, and uh, they became respect for him, Dallas Green, and and you look at Charlie Manuel, the you know, Phil, you know, Phillies fans say, who's this guy? I mean, he's a country bumpkin, and he's he's probably one of the most popular figures in franchise history. And how ironic is it that Dallas Green wins the title in 80? And like you said, it was very much a a dictatorship. And he wanted that team united against him, or at least at, 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 at minimum annoyed with him. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't hate each other so much, which years later we found out was the exact MO Herb Brooks used with the hockey team in 1980. Yeah. He wanted these guys from Boston and Minnesota to unite against him instead of fighting each other. And look, sometimes it works. And you have to have, no matter the sport, whether it's a manager, coach, whatever it is, if it's hockey, it doesn't matter the sport. The way it's always been never works. You have to find a way to take it's it's like cooking, Ken. I mean, you take the ingredients you have and you see how good you can, how, what can we make with this? You know, I'm not going to try to make, you know, I'm not going to try to make, you know, chicken in a wine sauce if I've only got an old pork chop in the fridge. And then and Rob Thompson took his time, adapted to what this team is. They got healthy. You know, they got healthier. Um, I'm so happy for Harper. I, I am so, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's been like to get that contract. It'd be a nice problem to have. Yes. But Bryce Harper, yes, he's wealthy beyond measure. But to miss the playoffs three in his first three years in Philly, man, I don't know if you can salvage that. Like he would have gone back to Clearwater that next spring, and it would have been the same questions all over again. And that gets old after a while. This could be the thing that re-energizes him in a lot of ways. But I think re-energizes the city, the fan base. There was a lot of games this year where it wasn't particularly filled. No. Bank Park. I went to a few games this year when I went down to visit my mom. And actually, the Braves were in town. Uh, when I was down there, and I saw Ian Anderson get lit up by the Phillies, uh, yeah. But the most part, it was it, it, it was barren down there. I mean, it, it's a shame because I, I think the fans were you know starving for winter, but they didn't see anything going on. And now, you, what you saw over the weekend with that's how yeah, especially that run they had from two thousand seven, two thousand eleven. That when you have a crowd like that and making noise, and uh, it affects the visiting team. And I think that that. You really hurt the Braves because you know Braves had a decent crowd, but they're not noisy. They had that no. stupid tomahawk chalk uh, chant, and uh, and you look at these Phillies fans; they're waving their towels and just basically. And you know, the place went. I'm, I'm surprised that Citizens Bank Park is still standing after Hopkins, Reese Hopkins' home run on Friday. So it's just that's the passion that came out that weekend. Now, when you can supplant. Eagles Dallas talk. You're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, unbeaten Eagles talk. Yes. yes, you're doing something right. I mean, and you're absolutely right in that the crowd can affect the, the the visiting team. The crowd affects the home team too a lot. Yeah. Like you give these guys a reason to believe. Um, it's held the Marlins back. It, it, the Marlins have had more talent than the record has shown at times over the last 20 years. This was not a good team this year, but there have been years when the Marlins were better than 70 wins or 73 or 77, whatever they ended up with. 
because it gets old playing down here in in front of five or six thousand people and i'm not i'm not kidding like the crowd the real crowds for years were that it's gotten a tiny bit better but they they don't fill it for anything yeah Um, maybe opening day the best crowds this year at marlins park will be in march at the world baseball classic Mm -hmm. that's it's it's bizarre so it's energized I, i think it works for for the home team as, as well, I mean, that, that Hoskins, you know, Gronk spike of the bat, it immediately becomes a moment. It is a moment. It is my it is my lock screen now on my laptop <laughs> and was the next morning. It's a moment in Philadelphia sports history. It, it's I think in time, if the Phillies, if they find a way to pull this off, the bat spike to me may be re- as replayed over time as that unbelievable Julius swooping reverse layup against the Lakers. Like it, it could take on a life like that, but that moment doesn't happen if there aren't 40,000 people wearing red. Yeah. All of them wearing jerseys. Philly fans rock jerseys more than I think any crowd ever. There are so many jerseys in that crowd. It's amazing. Yeah. I'll if, t- if, if not the same, that, that, that moment doesn't take on the life that I think it's going to live. I'll take you back for one more iconic moment, more than the Julie Serving swoop. I'll go back to Game 2 of the 1974 Stanley Cup Finals when Bobby Clark scores the overtime game winner Absolutely. in that series, and he he leaps in the air, and in that picture, you see him with uh, Jill Gilbert, the goaltender of the Bruins, down, and uh, Terry O'Reilly and Carol Vatanay just uh, not just looking basically stunned on the ice, and that how that turned that whole series around. The Flyers ended up winning their first Stanley Cup, and that and I was um, in uh, fifth grade at the time when that happened. So that was, that's an iconic moment. I mean, there are so many of them, but uh, I think the reason we have you on to talk NBA, isn't it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, I know it'd be, 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 maybe a week ago we could have thought that, but yeah. not so much now. No, no, no. Of course, the season. Yeah. Well, it is. Well, before we do the that, the season is here. Yeah, Thank goodness. Yeah, before we do that, I was looking at the schedule for next year. The Phillies, right after July Fourth, they go to Tampa for three and Miami for three. I'm thinking that could be a road trip for my son and I. Um, well, there will be plenty of good seats available in both of those ballparks. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that I can promise you. You don't need to worry about getting tickets the day they go on sale. Yeah. I think you're you're going to be fine just walking up those days. I don't think. even have to go to the secondary market to get tickets, probably. <laughs> I, secondary markets might... I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how much money they'll give you on the secondary markets <laughs> to take the ticket. All right, let's talk this NBA. Ticket is ne- this ticket is negative $30. Yeah, okay. great. Hey, great. No problem. <laughs> Pay me my 30 bucks so I can get the tickets. Uh, so let's talk NBA. The season has tipped off on Tuesday. There's some drama off the court leading into the season. Let's start with the Golden State Warriors and uh, the Draymond Green punch her around the world. What What is Draymond's Green problem? Well, he's um, he's always been a bit of an enigma wrapped in a riddle. We know that. Um, you know, he is um, he's always been a pest. I mean, look, Draymond is Draymond, and there's nobody quite like him. Draymond, without him, let's be real clear: without him, the Warriors don't win four titles in eight years. Mm-hmm. Stephen Curry's the best player. Steve Kerr runs the ship beautifully. Clay Thompson was unbelievable. They did have that Kevin Durant fellow that people tend to forget about. Um, 
they've had great players. They have great leadership. They have great ownership. They have ownership that isn't afraid to spend a trillion dollars a year on the team. It's a great building. Everything is first class with the Warriors. Everything. Their PR staff. Everything is first class with the Warriors. And and the 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 you know the end does justify the means with Draymond ninety nine percent of the time. Yes, he makes it about him. Yes, he does his podcast where he just shreds the media for being the media, and you know he wants to be. You know he wants a max contract that, frankly, he's not going to get. He wasn't going to get it before this. When Ken, when I saw when I heard about the punch, I was like, "All right." Things happen in practice, whatever. No, this wasn't that. Then the video got out. And and to me, that's still the bigger, that's the biggest part of all of this. Mm-hmm. That, the video was obviously the game changer. If a guy hits you and you're playing five on five, I mean, I've had swings taken at me. Um, I've probably done some stuff that I'm not real proud of, either you know, playing or pick up or whatever. This was not that. This was him walking over not in a play and deciding to punch a teammate in the face. To me, when I saw that tape, my first thought was Draymond wants out. My first thought was Draymond's forcing their hand and wants to be traded. There are many in the league that believe that Draymond Green would love to be with the Los Angeles Lakers. He is represented by Rich Paul. Rich Paul is the agent for LeBron James. Rich Paul, I think, represents about half of the Lakers roster, which might only be a slight exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see him trying to force his way out. I also could see Draymond, even though he said that this was not the case, Jordan Poole just agreed to a $140 million extension that kicks in next season. Now, Draymond's made well over $100 million in this game. He's got more money than he could ever spend, I hope. Uh, he will get another deal. It won't be that. But I, I, I wonder, too, if this was an ego thing where this young kid who got sent to the G League two years ago because he couldn't shoot is now all of a sudden getting the attention that I want. And, and I wonder if he struggles with that. So there, there's no – there's a million theories, and none of them are good. Yeah. Um, can this be the thing that – pulls the Warriors together or whatever cliche we want to throw at it. I don't know. But what it did for the Warriors was it snapped them into season mode. Like the honeymoon was over at that point. The, the, the championship hangover was over at that point. And I think they realized just how hard it's going to be. I think they've known it because they've defended three titles in the past. Two of them successfully. They know that this year is going to be difficult. I think that was a reminder of just how much harder it's going to be. And don't get me wrong, no matter no matter what they're going to say at the end of the year about what that punch did, brought the locker room together, made us closer, blah, 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 blah. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It made the job harder. Yeah. Because they should be enjoying everything on ring night, everything the first week of the year. It should be just a celebration of last season, and all those good feelings are gone. Mm-hmm. Speaking of good feelings, the team the Warriors beat in the uh, in the finals, uh, the Boston Celtics, they have a new coach because their previous coach, uh, or at least uh, say interim coach, uh, uh, the head coach Ime Udoka was suspended for the season after investigation found multiple violations of team policies. I mean, how shocking was this news? Yeah, that one was. It was a reminder that the NBA has no off season. 
Um, uh, that that storyline. I mean, Ime Odoka is a guy who people in the league, people with other teams, a lot of people were waiting for years and years and years for him to get his chance. And and he did an amazing job last year. I remember last year at the start of the year, the Celtics were very ordinary for the first 50 games last year. In fact, I think they were 25 and 25. I think they were the epitome of ordinary. They were the epitome of mediocre 50 games in the season. Um, people in Boston wanted him gone. Fans in Boston wanted him gone. You don't count Twitter. Yeah. But there was like fire email chance at games. Like they just didn't get it. They wanted to get back to the championship level that Brad Stevens had met more often than not. But again, like we talked about at the top with guys like Rob Thompson, it takes time to figure something out. And Ime let his guys be his guys. He let Jalen he let Jalen Brown have more of a voice. He let Marcus Smart dictate what he wanted who he wanted to be. You know, he Marcus Smart's an elite defensive player, obviously. He let Marcus Smart kind of dictate, okay, this is what I want the matchups to be. And then he let Jason Tatum shoot whenever Jason Tatum wanted. It's an easy game when you let your best players do what they do best. And that's eventually he got to that place. They caught lightning in a bottle, beat the Heat in a great series. The Heat won't make excuses. I mean, they were banged up at the end. The Celtics were dealing with health, too. Robert Williams wasn't right. Um, That whole series, they're going to miss Robert Williams for at least the first half of this year. Um, Knee injuries on big guys are never a big thing, or never a good thing. Then the email stuff happens. I will say this, though. Nobody outside of ardent basketball fans. You might remember that Joe Mazzulla played at West Virginia and his headlines that he wasn't, you know, the smartest young guy, you know, came out. He was, he, he's had some unsavory things in his past. I can tell you that when you talk to people around this league, and I've talked to a lot in the last couple of months, universally respected as a really smart guy. He's going to take Brad Stevens's blueprint and then what Ime Odoka did to tweak Brad Stevens' blueprint, and then he's going to put his own tweaks on it. Now, the difference between the Celtics situation and the Warriors situation is the Warriors situation, make no mistake, there will be clicks in that locker room now. There absolutely will be. Draymond is going to have to earn the trust of certain guys back, and some guys he may not, it may, not, may never be the same. With the Celtics, they love Joe Mazzulla. Those players love Joe Mazzulla. Joe Mazzulla is 34 years old. Mm-hmm. He's one of them. Al Horford is older than Joe Mazzulla. <laughs> and some guys on that team aren't too far away from his age. Yeah, That will unite. The, what went on with Ime, as terrible as the story is, and as many people got hurt in it and by it and will continue getting hurt with it, the players will say, uh-uh, we're not letting Joe Mazzulla fail. They will play hard for him. And that's all you can ask for as a coach. So it's not a positive in any way for Ime. But it could weirdly be a thing that brings the Celtics together and gives them another reason. I mean, you're always playing for a championship. Look, it's the Celtics. It's championship or bust. It always is in Boston, even when they're bad. It's always championship or bust. They're going to rally around Joe Missoula. And don't overlook... That number six being painted on the floor in Boston. Yeah. This year is going to be one long celebration of Bill Russell, as it should be. 
that's going to, trust me, that inspires these guys. A lot of these young Celtics guys, sure, they didn't know Russell. He'd been around the team. Some guys met him. They obviously didn't play in that era. They know what Bill Russell means. They were in the bubble. They were there for the Black Lives Matter shirts and Black Lives Matter being painted on the court and players being able to express themselves more freely now about political issues, about social issues in a league that is 80% African-American. That Playing with Bill Russell's number on the floor and number on their jersey, it's going to mean a lot to guys like Jalen, um, Jason, Marcus. It's going to mean a lot to those dudes. They have a lot of reasons why you're going to think they could take what they were last year and be better. Oh, and oh, the other thing, uh, they were two games away from winning it. Yeah. Boy, if that doesn't inspire them, nothing will. Yeah, definitely. Let's go down the road a little bit uh, to Brooklyn where Kevin Durant decides he's going to stay with the Nets after you know this drama of uh, whether he wants to be traded, wants to go somewhere else. And now he's going to play with uh, some guy named Ben Simmons who uh, last we saw did not take a shot against the Atlanta Hawks in Game 7 of the uh, playoffs in the uh, 2021. Um, the, Kevin, the Kevin Herter game, we call it. Kevin. Yeah. It was the Kevin Herter game. <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> but, you know, first of all, why do you think he stayed with Durant decided to stay with, with uh, the Nets? And my second question regarding Durant being a teammate with Ben Simmons, how long will it be? What's the over-under on how many games it'll take for Durant to get mad at uh, Ben Simmons for not playing with any heart? Uh... You know, we need to see a different Ben Simmons because, you know, Kyrie is Kyrie. Yeah. And he's, he's interesting. But you can't deny the talent. And you can't deny that when that guy gets on the court, um, he'll do just about anything to win a game. Kevin Durant is, I think, still the most unguardable player in the league. I don't know if he's the best player anymore, but 6'11 with a high release and can shoot from anywhere. Good luck. So if he's right, if you assume Kyrie will be uh, moderately driven, and I think that's what a lot of Kyrie's persona is, is he wants the anger. He wants people to hate on him. He, For whatever reason, he needs that. It, yeah. He turns that into Bible flavor. Like, okay, whatever. That you need that, that's fine. It's not for everyone. I wonder if they will bring something out of Ben Simmons. I really do. I, I, we will find out this year. What we're going to find out about Ben Simmons this year, and probably in the first couple, three months of the season, Ken, is does Ben Simmons love basketball? Mm -hmm. Does he want to play basketball? Do you love the lifestyle and the first and the 15th? Do you love the do you love paydays? I love it. Do you love, <laughs> I wish I could. I, I, I would love it. <laughs> Or do you want to play? We're going to find that out right away. And if he doesn't come out, you know, raring, I don't think he'll ever be a 20-point-a-game average guy, whatever. But he can impact the game in a lot of ways. He has a lot of gifts. Does he want to use them? Um, the first part of your question, it, it was really easy. There was no market for Kevin Durant. I mean, there was no equivalent market mm -hmm. for Kevin Durant. Everybody wanted it. I mean, when Kevin Durant hits the market, and believe me, the Nets had conversations. Well, I'm sure they had conversations with 29 teams because who doesn't call about Kevin Durant? Um, unless you're tanking. So maybe 25 teams. Yeah. Who knows? But the Rudy Gobert trade 
which happened a couple of weeks before, before the KD stuff really took off. Or right around the same time. I had the timing a bit wrong. But when, when, when Rudy Gobert got traded, that changed the market. Rudy Gobert is a really good player. I like him a lot. I am in the pro-Gobert camp. Um, four players and five draft picks. I might have it backwards. It might have been five players and four draft picks. Anyway, it was a U-Haul build of assets for Rudy Gobert. Kevin Durant is better than Rudy Gobert. So now what's the market for Kevin Durant? Yeah. Like 12 draft picks and seven players? Like how do you trade an entire team for Kevin Durant? I, I know what they wanted from Miami. Um, it was basically like three starters and two draft picks. Wow. No team could do it. Plus, at that point, you can't make the money. Remember, it's not like other sports. The money has to add up. You can't just go trade Kevin Durant for... Um, I'll, use, I'll use Miami. You can't use you can't trade Kevin Durant for Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson and two two draft picks. You can't do it because Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson's salaries this year I think are barely half what Kevin Durant's is. So the trades get very very complicated. You have a very limited window, especially when you're talking about the highest paid people in the game. There's only certain players you can trade for, them. and teams that want a championship aren't going to trade championship pieces. To bring in Kevin Durant, because then what do you stuck with? You stuck with the same team. You've lost. You, you, you've traded two good players to get one good player, and even if it is Kevin Durant, it doesn't make you better. So there was no market for it. Will he finish the four years there? I don't know. We, we they they might be looking at some chaos next summer. They might. I mean, you know, Kyrie's not on a long term deal anymore. This is you know, Kyrie's going to be available next summer. If the Nets stumble. If, if this year becomes like last year was, I think it gets easier to move Kevin Durant with three years and $150 million on the contract than four years and $200 million. Kyrie being available changes some things. Um, this, is, this is the year for the Brooklyn Nets. They've got to contend, and I mean go deep in the playoffs and have a real chance or else there will be a very, very, very different team 12 months from now. What about the other team in New York, the Knicks? Um... Never heard of them. <laughs> Did they take a step back last year? I, Yeah, but I kind of wondered, too, like, did they take, like, too much of a step forward two years ago? Like, was it, did they get a bit lucky? Um. Tom Thibodeau is a very hard coach to play for. Um, I have nothing. I, 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 I think Tom Thibodeau is a phenomenal coach. I think he's incredibly smart, but he's driven, right? Like mm-hmm. he's really focused. It's all about defense. It's tough to get guys in this day and age to embrace that. Tom Thibodeau is hard. A lot of guys are players coaches. Tom Thibodeau is not. Yeah. So, they have to get through that. They have to get through a year healthy. Um, you know, Mitchell Robinson is a nice player, but like, don't don't we hear far too much grumbling from Mitchell Robinson? Like, it, it's it's the stuff like that about the Knicks that makes you say, eh, they're just there. There is young talent there. Um, I'm a big Evan Fournier guy. I really am. I think he's the type of guy who can be a, a nice complimentary piece on a really good team. The Knicks aren't that, though. 
they're not a really good team. Like they need Evan Fournier to be more than he is. Um, they they got to keep developing the young kids. They got to stay healthy. The East is the East is loaded. The East is so good. So is the West. There's so much. There's more teams I think are legitimate contenders this year than there have ever been in my time in my 20 years covering the NBA. There have never been this many teams you could point to and say that team's going to win the championship. And you're like, yeah, I can see it. The Knicks are not in that group. I think there's a legitimate 12, maybe even 14 teams that you look at them right now. You can say, I can see them winning a championship. I might not bet on them all, but I can see that team winning a championship. The Knicks are not in that group. You, uh, in your preview, you did the Western Conference and your uh, AP colleague Brian Mahoney did the East. You're picking the Clippers to finish first in the West, and Brian's picking Milwaukee to finish first in the East. Will those two teams be in the finals in June or be somebody else? Of course not, because I picked the Lakers to finish first in the West last year. So my pick's never great. Um, I'm I'm like, you know, I, I'm no McAdam at the track, trust me. My <laughs> picks are not good. Um, I, I am, uh, I mean, it, it, again, if healthy. Look, the Bucks are already without Chris Middleton for a few weeks to start the year. And it's just tough to come back. When you miss the start, it's tough to come back. Um, the Bucks didn't really make any moves of great significance. I mean, Joe Ingles against a nice player. He won't be ready for a few months as he gets back. You know, he's still working his way back from an ACL. I worry that they're going to ask Giannis to do too much because they're not going to have Middleton. Uh, you know, Drew Holiday isn't a young kid anymore. They might be the best regular season team. The Clippers might be the rest, best regular season team. I, until somebody proves otherwise, I would still pick the Warriors to win the whole thing. And out of the East, you could take a half dozen teams. I, I'd probably, at this point, I don't want to say Miami just because I, I work here. I work here, and people will say that's why he's picking the Heat. Mm-hmm. But to me, the teams that are as constructed right now, if healthy, now again, that being the caveat, the teams that are built right now to survive a seven-game series – against somebody that's equally good are Philly and Miami. Those are the teams in the East right now that I think are the most playoff ready. Now we got to get through many, many marathons to get there. Yeah. But to me, the most playoff ready teams right now are those two yeah. in, in the East. Let's wrap it up with uh, Victor Wembanyama Mania. Yes. You saw him play. Uh, is this kid legitimate? Yeah, he is. I was skeptical. Ken, I was skeptical when I went out there. I went, um, I spent a week in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago um, because his French team was out there playing the G League Ignite team, the league-sponsored team from the G League in a couple of exhibitions. And, you know, the the G League team has this guy, has this guard named Scoot Henderson from Marietta, Georgia, who is widely perceived to be the number two player in the draft. Um, and he played very well. He got hurt in the second game, actually went knee-to-knee with Lepinyama in a very scary moment for everybody. <laughs> um, the entire league was there. Every team had multiple people out there to watch this French kid practice. Um, I sat down with him and did a one-on-one interview with him. He's a, he's a remarkable young man. He's really smart. His English is perfect. Um, his English is better than mine which doesn't say much. Um, 
his French is certainly superior to mine. He just comes from this, he just seems like this nice kid. His parents traveled with him. Like, they weren't hovering, but they were there. They just seemed very chill. Um, you know, dad was this champion high jumper who's like 6'7", six, 6'6", six, six maybe. Mom is this beautiful, blonde, former basketball player who I think still coaches the game. She's like 6'3". So there's a genetic jackpot, obviously, there for the young man. Uh, two very tall parents who were wonderful at the sports they played. This kid's athletic. He's not he's, – he's skinny, but he's 18. Um, the belief around the league is that when this kid gets 20 or 25 more pounds on him, which he will easily do, who's going to guard him? Seven foot four, and he has guard skills – He's got a pretty solid post game. He's going to have enough mass on him when he gets to the league, and certainly within two or three years of coming over, he'll be thicker than he is now, and be you know stronger than he is now. So he'll be able to absorb the banging that goes on in the post, and he's still going to shoot over you anyway. I mean, Ken, he could stand underneath the rim and just extend his arm. He's five inches from the rim. Hmm. His standing reach is nine seven. Nine foot seven, without jumping, and he's athletic. He he does he he had a dunk in the second game, where he just took off in the middle of the foul line and like kicked his legs like out backwards. And you see you see Bronny James do this. That's the eighteen year old you see doing this. You see these super athletic, powerful young guards with dunks like this. You don't see seven foot four guys doing it. Victor Wembanyama is different in every way and there will be a, the biggest game of the year for a bunch of teams will be in the middle of may in a hotel room in chicago when those ping pong balls spit out it's all about the lottery well and there will be doubt that this kid's number one bigger question is how many teams are going to be tanking <clears throat> san antonio oklahoma city um utah i think is trying to tank but they're doing it wrong because they have still too many good players on the team. Um, I don't think Orlando will tank. I just don't know if Orlando's there yet. So Orlando could walk into back-to-back number one picks. And, and remember, it's not like the old days. The three worst teams in the league only have a 14% chance each of winning number one. Mm-hmm. That's it. No team is better than 7-1 to one odds. You could go 0-82. The worst team in the league this year, the worst record in the league, will have a 48% chance of picking fifth and a 52% chance of picking first, second, third, or fourth. Wow. So, yes, you can tank, but it's still up to the ping pong balls, and you have to get really lucky at that lottery. You can, you can only swing the odds so far in your favor. Now, will they freeze some ping pong balls like they did with Patrick Ewing envelope in 85. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be really tough to rig ping pong balls. I think uh, it's the lottery is going to be amazing in that a couple of fan bases are going to be like, we paid how much money to watch a team tank. And then they're not going to get this guy. It's some people are going to be really, really disappointed that night. In May. Yeah. Well, Tim, I hope the next time we're talking, it'll be at a parade in Philadelphia saluting the world champion Philadelphia Phillies. Can't believe we're even saying it. But, you know, if they're going to still play in the middle of October, I don't know. 
What do you say we go win the whole damn thing? That's right. How about that? Why not? Why not? Just uh, dispatch San Diego and worry about uh, whoever comes out of the American League. As, 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 it'll as, be, it'll be the Astros. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it'll be the Astros. Tim, I appreciate it. Wonderful chatting with you, and uh, we'll talk during the season. And uh, I hope. Just what makes that I hope, baby. Sing it. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. But the, the uh, Tim and Tim show continues next with Tim Helium Newsday as we talk the New York Mets. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. A game without a crowd is just a scrimmage. A performance without an audience is just a rehearsal. Without your presence, high school sports and the performing arts aren't possible. Ensure that these essential extracurricular activities continue to enrich the lives of students in New York. Purchase a ticket to your local high school's game or performance. This message presented by NISFA and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Mark Kestisher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and college football on ESPN Radio. I grew up in Gilderland. I'm a proud member of the 518, and I go back over 30 years with Ken Schott. And when I'm not listening to his Schottsky Radio, I'm listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Here's Ken. Welcome back to the podcast and in the second half of the Tim and Tim show here on the Parting Shots podcast. It's Tim Healy from Newsday who covers the uh, Mets who are not playing in the National League Championship Series and not they didn't play in the National League Division Series. And uh, Tim, I mean, how shocked are you that the Mets are still not playing? Uh, I'm honestly very surprised that the season ended as abruptly as it did. If you think back to, say, a week to go in the regular season, there were it was highly, highly likely that the Mets at least would get to the division series. But they basically got the nightmare scenario of getting swept in Atlanta, which cost them the division, and then getting beat by the Padres. And so their season was over in the wildcard series. So even a week later, it's still, frankly, a pretty stunning turn of events for the Mets for as good as they were for five and a half, almost six months for it to end the way that they did. Yeah, 101 wins in the season. I mean, they looked like they were basically on cruise control, going to win, look like they were going to easily win the East Division. I mean, then the Braves really caught fire. And did the Mets lose or the Braves just play better than the Mets down the stretch? I think it's both. I think, you know, I'll give a lot of credit to the Braves, who, of course, also did not escape the Division Series um, because of uh, your Phillies. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the Braves were an excellent team, especially from June 1st onward. That said, the Mets had a ten and a half game lead in June. They had a seven game lead after taking four out of five from the Braves in early earlyish August, and then a two and a half game lead with a week and a half to go. So the Mets absolutely blew it. I don't buy at all into the idea that oh, you know, uh, the Braves the Mets didn't lose it. The Braves won it. That's true, but the Mets also blew it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, uh, they definitely deserve some blame. Did these injury to Sterling Marte affect things? I mean, was that a, a catalyst? It did, yeah. It, to take him out of right field, to take him out of the number two spot in the lineup, uh, really kind of threw everything else out of whack. Think about all the DH problems that they had. 
you know, with Darren Ruff, Daniel Vogelback for weeks at a time, calling up Vientos, calling up Alvarez, looking for any sort of lightning in a bottle patchwork solution. Uh, that might not have been a problem at all if Starling Marte was healthy, because then you could just put Marte at uh, DH or Jeff McNeil at DH and play Guillaume. You know, like there were there were other. Uh, variations of solutions that were would have been available to the Mets had they still had marketing. But that wasn't the case and uh, that was a that was a rough break for them. What about the deadline deal that brought Darren Ruff from San Francisco for J D Davis? And it turned out I think you might have tweeted this that Davis had more home runs and uh, Ruff had hits. And Yeah, it, it it was close. It was eight home runs for J D Davis with the Giants. And 10 hits, period, for Darren Ruff with the Mets. So that was a disaster of a trade for the Mets. J.D. Davis basically got healthy and started hitting at about the time doctors told him he would start hitting. And his wrist, which was surgically repaired the year prior, would start feeling normal again, be full, you know, back to 100% strength. Um, so that that was not only did they give up J.D. Davis in that trade, but they gave up three minor league pitchers, one of whom, Thomas Zipocchi, looked like a pretty useful left-handed reliever for the Giants down the stretch. So uh, not a good one for Billy Epler, to, to say the least. I mean, how do they explain that one? I mean, I, I mean does Steve Cohen go to Epler and say, what were you thinking? Well, the way the Mets explain away bad moves is, to say it's not about results, it's about process. And they liked their process because at the time of the trade deadline, J.D. Davis was having a terrible season. Darren Ruff was having an excellent season against left-handed pitchers. And as soon as they got traded for each other, that pretty much flipped completely. So, you know, the Mets would say, or have said, you know, it's a small sample on Darren Ruff of only two months, and basically they just got unlucky. So, you know, take that explanation for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and I have talked, we talked a couple of times, you know, we talked before the season and during the season. And one thing I always stressed was pointed out Buck Showalter comes up short in the postseason. I mean, yes. Can he be blamed for what happened? down the stretch, leading into the postseason, and if so, what? why is, should he take the blame? Um, I, I'm not super inclined to blame him. I, I, I've probably said this to you before, been probably talking about a couple different managers, but I think with managers generally, they get too much credit when things go well and too much blame when things go poorly. And I think that was true on both ends for Showalter, all year, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when the Mets the Mets won 100, 100 games, was that Showalter's doing? Nah, you know, he, he played a role, surely, but I'm not sure he's more important than adding Scherzer or adding Marte or Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil having all-star seasons, etc. Um, and then at the end, is it, is it Buck Showalter's fault that the Mets blew that huge lead in the NL East? Maybe a little bit, something he could have done differently, but really it's on the players. It comes down to the players performing up to their capabilities, or in the case of the Mets late in the season, not performing up to their capabilities. Um, I do think, you mentioned the postseason thing, Buck Showalter now has one postseason series win in 
21 seasons as a major league manager. I do think he had a weird wild card series. I think his bullpen management with Edwin Diaz in the seventh inning of game two and then using him in the eighth inning of what by then was a blowout was pretty weird on Buck Show Walter's part. Mm-hmm. And then and then there was the whole Joe Musgrove episode. Um, you know, Buck Show Walter played it off multiple times like of course, he asked the umpires to check Joe Musgrove's ears because he had no choice but to ask. And I, I just thought it came off as kind of odd and desperate. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Obviously, it didn't work out in the Mets' favor since Joe Musgrove stayed in the game and retired six of the next seven batters. So. I, mean, I mean, how embarrassing was it? I mean, I know Gary Cohen, the, the fine play-by-play voice on SNY, was critical of it afterwards. And it just seemed like... I, I go back to when the Mets and the Cardinals are big rivals when when they were both in the NL East and yeah, Whitey Herzog be challenging you know, you know, Mets bats and you know, vice versa with Davey Johnson. So, but that was more you know, there, there were bitter rivals. This seemed like it was just an act of desperation trying to spark his team, and it didn't act backfire. Des- yeah, act of desperation is is exactly right. You know, their season was. I, I get it from a strategy perspective season is slipping away, maybe they'll get lucky or maybe this will wake up the bats or spark the crowd, which it kind of did, um, stuff like that. But I, I am more inclined to agree with Gary Cohen that it just comes off as bad-looking. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, uh, I don't think Joe Musgrove is a uh, Gaylord Perry here. So let's, let's be fair. Right. <laughs> so, um, also, he, there's some issues with the starting pitching. Obviously, you know, John, um, Max Scherzer broke down toward the end of the season. Uh, Jacob DeGrom had a 5-4, you know, 3.08 ERA in 11 outings. He faltered down the stretch until uh, you know, he played pitched well in Game 2 of the uh, wild card series against the Padres. We know Scherzer has a big contract. It's tied up. He's 38 years old. DeGrom's 34. He's going into free agency. What's going to happen here with this with the pitching staff? If uh, do they sign re-sign the Grom? Do they let him walk? Do they maybe one one uh, listener asked if they try to trade for Otani, which I don't think they can with the the contract he just signed with the Angels. Yeah, it's it's there, there's a lot of question marks right now with the Mets pitching staff. They have potentially four out of five starters becoming free agents, including DeGrom, of course. And then most of the bullpen is going to free agency as well. So Billy Epler and company definitely have their work cut out for them, pitching staff-wise, this offseason. Max Scherzer is the one holdover. He is old. He does have a very expensive contract, albeit only for one or two more years. I'm really not that worried about him. He did have a couple mediocre starts late in the year. Oh well, you know it, it happens. To, it happens to everybody. It happened to him at one point earlier in the season. It's just unfortunately timed. Uh, Scherzer eventually will presumably lose to Father Time and and not be the elite pitcher that he's always been. Uh, but this regular season, he had a two point two nine ERA, which is the best in his career. So I'm not too worried about Max Scherzer yet. Degrom is an interesting question. Should the Mets resign him? I don't think it's a slam dunk. Yes, of course they'll try, ostensibly. Um, but if the Grom is looking for a contract that 
Topps, Max Scherzer's record average annual salary of $43.3 million per year. I'm not sure that it's a good idea for the Mets to give him that because he is going into his age 35 season. He has the well-documented injury history that the Mets know as intensely as anybody. Um, I'm sure the Mets know lots of stuff that DeGrom has dealt with through the years that we, the, we, the public don't even know, uh, which is the case for anybody when you have a player for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, he's, is he going to be worth that money? I, it, I'm, I'm really not confident in saying yes. Yeah, obviously, you know, Chris Bassett has a mutual option for next year at 19 million with a only $150,000 buyout, which seems kind of cheap. Um, yeah, Tejan Walker, I mean, he's likely to decline his $7.5 million option. And uh, yeah, Carlos Carrasco is 35. Um, the Mets have an option with him. Do they keep these guys? Do they let them walk? Or is it a case you know, they have to pick and choose? They're going to have to pick and choose. With Bassett, I think the mutual option gets declined by Bassett because he'll be due for probably a solid 80 to $100 million deal, somewhere in that range. And I think the Mets will try. I think that'd be a really good move for the Mets to sign him to a deal in that range. Taiwan Walker, virtual lock to decline that player option, as you said. He should cash in pretty good. I'm not sure that the Mets will keep him long-term. And then Carrasco's sort of a up-in-the-air one. $14 million team option or a $3 million buyout. So you're talking about an $11 million difference there. For a back-end starter who this year was mostly healthy, mostly reliable, that's not a terrible price. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me totally if they exercised that and keep Carrasco for another year. And the bullpen is also going to be in a state of flux. I mean, Edwin Diaz could you know, be uh, headed for free agency. Uh, Adam Ottaviano, uh, Seth Lugo, Trevor May, maybe uh, Michael Gibbons and uh, Trevor Williams. So I mean, how important is it to start? Let's start with Diaz. How important is it to, to keep him? It's pretty important. It's pretty important. Diaz may well become the first $100 million reliever, which would be uh, a, heck of a heck of a thing for him after the start he had with the, in his Mets career and uh, really a heck of an investment for the Mets. Uh, but there's a case to be made that Edwin Diaz is more valuable to the Mets than he would be to other teams because the Mets know he can do the job for them. They've seen it. They've seen him fail in New York and then become a phenomenon in New York. So there's definitely a lot of merit to the Mets having to prioritize Edwin Diaz. Um, you mentioned all the other guys. I, I would also add Joely Rodriguez to that list. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, basically seven of their top eight relievers or something like that uh, are all uh, free agents. Where are the Mets strong going into the offseason? What do they need to, other than, other than pitching, what do they need to uh, shore up? Uh, the other qu- question mark because of free agency is center field. Brandon Nimmo is going to be a free agent, and he, in my opinion, is the guy they should prioritize the most because he is a legitimate center fielder, as we've seen the past couple of seasons. He's an excellent leadoff guy, as we've seen for many seasons now. Um, so he, he's 
going to be a very good use of $100 million for somebody, and I, I think the Mets should uh, make sure they are that somebody. Um, uh, and then, other than that, it's really focused on the pitching staff. A, a lot of their position players are returning. The whole infield, the catcher situation needs to be figured out, but all of the options are internal with McCann, Nito, and Alvarez, and the Canna and, and Marte and, and the corner outfield spots are, are going to be back. So, um, you know, we'll see what changes come offensively in the offseason. Um, but it's looking a, a lot more like trades, if anything, than, you know, free agents having to figure that out. How would you assess the job Buck Showalter did this year? You know, obviously, you know, he's got him 101 wins and. I think a lot of people say the, the Mets overachieved this year, you know, obviously coming from where they came from the last couple of years. But did they overachieve, or was the, the bucket the most out of that he could? I think both of those are the same, and I think it's true. I think the Mets absolutely overachieved. They played over their heads for what I thought was going to be a couple of months and then ended up being five and a half, almost six months, really six months. They did win 101 games. Um, and you have to credit that at least in part to Showalter, who uh, was one of the big pieces they added last offseason. Uh, and, and like I said earlier, who should be who, who is more to credit for this drastic Mets turnaround, Buck Showalter or, for example, Max Scherzer? Probably Max Scherzer, since he's actually on the field playing. Mm-hmm. Showalter or Starling Marte? Probably Marte, right? Yeah. Um, so, so Showalter falls in there somewhere. Does deserve credit for a, an excellent regular season for the Mets, uh, but you know, not that he or they have anything to show for it, really. What do you think the front office and Buck are thinking right now, seeing the Phillies, the third place team in the National League East, playing in the National League Championship Series against San Diego? You know, I posed this question to a version of this question to Mets fans on Twitter the other day. Does the sting of the Mets losing go away because the Dodgers and Braves met a similar fate? Or is it hurt less because, you know, misery loves company? Uh, or does it hurt more because the NL was, was wide open? And with, with the Phillies, it's sort of, sort of the opposite, right? Yeah. The Braves and Mets beat each other up all season. And then it's the 88-something win with Phillies who make it to the NLCS. How bizarre and what a great example of what has been true for a long time but has proven especially true this year, that the playoffs are kind of a, a crapshoot. You know, the team that comes to mind first is the 2011 Cardinals, who... No, don't remind me that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, weren't very good, of course, but got hot at the right time. And frankly, the Braves in 2021, who weren't very good, but got hot for August, September, and it turned out October. So maybe the Phillies are one of those teams. That would be that would be kind of funny <laughs> as, a, like, as a neutral as a neutral baseball observer. And I like the fact that the Phillies are actually playing anti-analytic baseball, small ball, running, moving runners right. over. And I think that's what you got to do in a playoff. You, you, you play the analytics baseball, do it during the regular season, but the way the Phillies are playing baseball right now, it's old school baseball. That's the way baseball should be played. Yeah, yep. And, and they've got two great pitchers in Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola and enough big bats to really ruin your week, which at this time of year, ruining your week means ruining your season. So 
Don't sleep on the Phillies. Who do you like in that series? We as we hear talk on Monday, they start on Tuesday. You, you know, I, I I like the Phillies over the Padres, but if you ask me who I liked in any other series that has happened so far, I probably would have been wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that's the beauty of it, I guess. Yeah, we obviously we can't talk about the American League as I said. We're taping Monday, and Game Five of the Yankees Guardian Series is taking place Monday night. So uh, Houston's just waiting that winner. I mean, I, Houston to me, it just they're. I think there's gonna, they're going to be the team to beat no matter what happens. Yeah, pretty much, which is a bummer because we as a baseball-loving society should hate Houston still, right, because of this, the stink off their cheating scandal that we learned about a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, at the, I remember thinking at this time last year, this is going to be this, this stinks because the Astros are probably going to win the World Series now. I forget, you know, who lost and they didn't think that. But I remember thinking, you know, this is our last chance as baseball people to get the Astros out of the playoffs. And then the Braves ended up beating them in the World Series. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Tim, I appreciate all you've done for me over the season. And, uh, well, it's going to be an interesting offseason for the Mets. And we'll be following you on Twitter with all that information and in uh, Newsday. Thank you very much. Right, that's Tim Healy of Newsday. Uh, back with Adam Schinder, my guest, that colleague, as we talk high school football. You're listening to the Party Shots Podcast. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports reporter Will Springstead. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the non-Tim portion of the podcast as Adam Schindler joins me now. We tried to convince him to call himself Tim. but <laughs> as, as, as a fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there are some who called me Tim. <laughs> Well, let's talk high school football. And last week, the big game was in Class C with Warrensburg, Lake George, and North Warren taking on Schuylerville. Talk about that one. Yeah, uh, if you like uh, large numbers in terms of some some history, this is a pretty big one. Uh, snapped a three-year regular season win uh, re- uh, winning streak for Schuylerville as Warrensburg uh, came out with the eighteen to seven win. Uh, Schuylerville had not lost to a Section 2 team since Week 2 of the 2019 season to Glens Falls. Since then, the only other team that had beaten uh, the Black Horses was Chenango Forks in the 2019 and 2021 state title games. So it's a big win uh, for Warrensburg that really took control of that Class C North division. It was uh, one of the few undefeated on undefeated games we've had left. And uh, I think probably the last one we will see is they're now no longer... There's only uh, only one other classification that's still... Class C is now the only classification with two undefeated teams with Warrensburg and Fonda Fultonville. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a look at the Class C power rankings first. As, you know, Warrensburg, Lake George, North Warren is one. Fonda Fultonville is two. Skylarville, three. 
who's at Falls Tamarack 4 and Stillwater 5. Yep, uh, Warrensburg, Lake George, North Warren, uh, based on their resume, uh, and that, that's the most impressive win that anyone's had this season. They go number one. Fonda Fultonville has done absolutely nothing wrong this season. They played a one-point game against uh, Central Valley Academy, a, a Class B team from out in Section 3 in Week 1. Since then, uh, they have absolutely destroyed everyone they face. They've, they're allowed about six points a game. They have three shutouts. Uh, they just have not faced, especially with the South Division pretty clearly being uh, a little bit weaker than the North Division, they have not faced the competition. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get into those crossovers in the playoffs next week, actually. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This week's the last week for regular season play, Class C, and are, are the positions pretty well set at this point? Yeah, we're in a fairly cut and dry. The, uh, the, with, 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 barring extraordinary circumstances, uh, the North Division is set. It'll be Warrensburg, Schuylerville, Hoosick Falls, Tamarack, Stillwater, uh, Fauna Fultonville's pretty well got uh, the top of the, uh, has the, the uh, South Division pretty well locked up. But Alden, Perth, Cobleskill, Richmondville, Johnstown are probably the other three playoff teams. Could switch uh, a little bit. Cobleskill, Richmondville has the tiebreaker off over both of those teams. But uh, they have a loss to Hudson early in the season mm-hmm. that's going to be weird to calculate because Hudson stopped midseason. So these records are going to be a little bit tough, but it looks like Cobal Skill would, have, would be the team to get the second home game. Well, let's take a look at the uh, power rankings uh, in Class AA. CBA still on top, followed by Shenandoah, Shaker, Saratoga Springs, and Gildeland. Yeah, this one's uh, uh, no change at this point. This is also... Uh, Barring something weird the next couple of weeks, uh, Saratoga Springs will have a chance to create some chaos. Gilderland, the number five team, still plays a couple of these top teams. So if you look at the standings, Gilderland is probably in the playoffs right now. But based on how things look, probably looks like they'll be the fifth team on the outside looking in. Uh, but these rankings have not changed for a little bit. Yeah. In Class A, it's Burn Hills, Boston Lake, Niskayuna, a tie with Averill Park and Boston Spa and LaSalle. Yeah, let's really say this is Burn Hills, Boston Lake, and then four teams yeah. that are so close that nobody really knows what to do with them. Uh, you know, Niskayuna beat Boston Spa. Boston Spa beat Avril Park. LaSalle beat Niskayuna. This is very, very confusing. I think on in terms of recent play, Niskayuna and Avril Park have looked the best over recent weeks. But LaSalle very quietly has won five games in a row. Uh, it's just they're really about to face, uh, between facing Avril Park this week and Amsterdam next week, probably the two toughest games they have left on their schedule. And over in Class B, it's still Glens Falls on top, Ravina, Coyman, Selkirk, Gloversville, Lansingburg, and Scotia Glenville. Yeah, the mover here is Lansingburg uh, getting into the top four after beating Scotia last week. That also puts them in pole position for the playoffs. They can pretty much lock that up this week. Uh, the Ravina-Gloversville game on Friday that we'll talk about in a sec, that's also going to be... Uh, those two teams are pretty much locked into playing each other in the playoffs, mm-hmm. so we'll see. We'll, uh, that'll be a nice playoff preview this And week. finally, Class D, uh, Cambridge-Salem, followed by Chatham, Greenwich, and Canajari, Fort Plain, and Voorheesville. Yeah, this is also the last week of Class D games, but... Class D games usually play a crossover game against non-playoff Class C teams next week. So the playoffs will be set, but they will start their tournament at the same time as uh, A, AA, and B, or A, AA, and B in a couple of weeks. Uh, these have been, again, pretty well locked in at the top three for a while. Canajari, Fort Plain, big win last week, uh, beat Voorheesville, so the Cougars jump into that fourth spot and the fourth playoff spot. Well, let's take a look at some of the uh, big games on Friday. We'll start. We have two uh, games in Class AA. Let's begin with Saratoga Springs at CBA. Yeah, kind of a last chance uh, for Saratoga Springs to maybe make a little bit of noise uh, before the end of the regular season and maybe kind of upset some apple carts here. Uh, CBA has just looked phenomenal, really, uh, other than their overtime game against Shaker, uh, and a tight first half against Shen, where they still clearly were the, the superior team. 
It's uh, they've looked so so good. Uh, the brothers uh, basically will wrap up up top seed because they'll play one of the uh, non playoff teams in week eight. And then the other class double A game, uh, Shaker Gildeland. Yeah, two things to to mention here. One, this is again sort of last chance saloon for Gildeland. They get Shaker this week. They get Shen next week. So maybe the du- maybe the Dutchman can make a little bit of noise. Uh, this is also just a nice one for Gildeland because they're finally opening up uh, their turf field. They've played at a couple of different uh, road sites this year. So they finally get it home on brand new turf field. Good for that. Program. Yeah, that's got to be tough. Uh, you know, playing games. They finally, got to play a home game, and, and but it's late October, and really, yeah, kind of very, very, very tough. Like they had one. It was a couple of weeks ago. They were supposed to have their uh, home opener uh, by midweek. They realized uh, the weather hasn't been good. Turf's not going to be ready. They end up playing that game at Mahanson, which has been one of their home sites this year. Yeah. Well, skip Class A for a sec because there's three games there. But well, let's go to Class B in uh, Gloversville. Travels to Ravina, Quaim, and Selkirk. Yeah, it's a playoff preview. Uh, these two teams, based on the fact that they've beaten everyone behind them, and uh, really neither team has a challenge next week, they're going to be in the playoffs. They're going to play each other. They're going to be the two and the three seeds. So this game is basically determining who's going to be at home uh, two weeks from now. Uh, something we've seen in Class B a bunch of times. We saw this in Class B last year where they were both late season uh, playoff rematches. This one, at least unlike Glens Falls, Ravina last year, uh, which was those two teams were locked into playing each other and nothing was going to change when they played in the regular season. At least this one does mean something. Both teams are going to win and avoid what is a pretty long bus trip uh, out in Class B. Yeah, well, Let's go to Class A now. Three games are highlighted, beginning with Amsterdam at Troy. Uh, Amsterdam at Troy, this is a must-win game for Amsterdam. They've lost two straight. Uh, if they lose this one, they're going to have a very, very difficult time uh, missing, uh, making the playoffs. If they win this one... They're in position to to get into it to get into uh, again try and force a three way tie or edge out LaSalle depending on what happens uh, in that LaSalle April Park game, which is the one we'll get to next. Yeah, to talk about that one. The, uh, obviously, as you said, LaSalle's been playing well, number five in the uh, power rankings. Yeah, LaSalle's played really, really well since early in the season. Uh, they went out, they played CBA and Shen the first two weeks, so they got super battle tested. They've reeled off five straight wins, but they have not had to face the top part of this uh, capital division in the last few weeks. This game's a big one. Uh, if Averill Park wins, they're going to be in the playoffs. Uh, that, should, that basically locks up the division uh, for them. If LaSalle wins, uh, if, LaSalle, if LaSalle wins, then they'll have the edge, but they will need to beat Amsterdam next week to still seal up the division. If Averill Park, if LaSalle loses this week and Amsterdam beats Troy, we're looking at an Amsterdam-LaSalle game next week uh, that's going to decide which of those two teams goes to the playoffs, uh, which is exactly what happened last year. This is also a rematch of what was probably the most controversial game of 2021, overtime game in the rain uh, that uh, Averill Park ended up winning on an extra point in overtime that on every replay looked like the kick had missed and the game should have continued. Yeah. Too bad they don't have video replay, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and finally, the Battle of Route 50, uh, Burn Hills, Boston Lake at Boston Spa. Yeah, both Boston's. And uh, this one is, it's another, it's a last chance for Boston Spa. Uh, they are, they're, they're six and one. They've looked really, really good, but that one loss to Niskayuna really, really hurts them. They need to win this game or else they're looking at the possibility of being a 7-2 and two team that misses the playoffs. Burn Hills, they win this, and it's going to set up a winner-take-all uh, game for the division next week against Niskayuna. Well, it should be an interesting weekend uh, coming up. Um, it's, uh, thank you again once for talking. We'll do this again next week because next week we'll wrap up, basically wrap up the regular season. Yeah, next week. Uh, crazy. Yeah, we get our first round of playoffs next week in Class C and then the, uh, the, the final kind of decision day in the other four classifications. Yeah. All right, thanks, Adam. That's Adam Shin.
Ender. Uh, we'll wrap up the podcast and have the latest winners in the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football and Auto Racing Contest in just a moment. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. High school sports don't just happen. There's a ton of work that goes into every single athletic event. And we have our school's athletic director to thank for a lot of it. Thank you. For scheduling officials so I can always play the game I love. For ordering quality athletic equipment so I can stay safe on the field. For mentoring my coaches so they can be the best role models for me. For coordinating transportation so I can get focused for the big game. For helping us develop character and learn lessons that will benefit us for the rest of our lives. Thank you to our AD for always creating a positive experience for us. We'll never forget it. From all of us at the NIAAA, thank you to every athletic administrator in New York for all you do to enrich the lives of your students. It does not go unnoticed. This message presented by the NIAAA, the National Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Hello, this is John D. Augustine, the publisher at the Daily Gazette. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The week six winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick a Football contest was Steve LaPlante of Glenville. Steve wins a $100 Hannaford gift card. Congratulations, Steve. The VIP winners were Tom Cotugno of BL's Tavern and Grill, his third straight win. And me for the second straight week. I went 10-4 and four last week, while my Gazette colleague Adam Schinder was 6-8. and eight. I am tied for the lead at 55-38-1. Adam is 51-42-1. I'll announce the winner of the You Pick'em Football Contest, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. To play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the You Pick'em Football banner. The Week 33 winner in the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest was Pat Comley of Schenectady with 70 points. Pat wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Pat. The VIP winner was me with 70 points. I have reclaimed first place. The non-Gazette VIP winner was Nick Platel of Grand Premier Tires with 30 points. I'll announce the winner of the auto racing contest, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. To play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the auto racing contest banner. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on how COVID-19 is affecting us in the capital region. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this situation We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Tim Reynolds, Tim Healy, and Adam Schinder for coming on the show. I'll have a Union College Hockey podcast Thursday as the Dutchman gets set to face 6th rank UMass in Amherst, Massachusetts this weekend. I hope you will listen. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots.
The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.